Hello, this is Voice Box, and I'm Chloe Veltman. Thanks for joining me. Oh, I'll twine with my mangles and waving black hair. Carter Family was one of the most popular American roots bands of the first part of the 20th century. Their music had a profound impact on bluegrass, country, southern gospel, pop and rock musicians, as well as on the US folk revival of the 1960s. The lead singer for the Carter Family, Sarah Carter, had a very distinctive voice. It's not the kind of voice you hear that much today. To a contemporary ear, it definitely sounds like it comes from yesteryear. For some singers today, like the Bay Area-based vocalist Meredith Axelrod, Sarah Carter's voice, as well as the vocal stylings of other popular singers from the early years of sound recording, are a source of both fascination and emulation. Meredith spends hours carefully listening to and analysing early recordings of these singers' voices and tries to recreate their sound in her work. Meredith is in the studio with me today to talk about how people sang in the early years of recorded sound. We'll also explore how tastes and approaches to popular singing have changed between then and now and why increasing numbers of contemporary vocalists are seeking inspiration from the phonograph and gramophone era. Hi, Meredith. It's delightful to have you here with me. Hi, it's delightful to be here. Thank you for having me. So, Meredith, I see you have your ukulele with you in this beautiful old case. Um, How about a song? All right. So what are you going to sing for us? I'd like to sing Blue River. Blue River. That's a song that was made popular by Sophie Tucker, right? Yes. And Elvis. Yes. Okay, let's hear your version. All right. Birds in the trees and a song Saw my hopes go drifting down 
when your blue eyes lost their light as we whispered adieu. When I hear your lonesome song, something's wrong. Blue river, blue river, maybe it's because I'm just as blue as you. Meredith Axelrod with Blue River, a song by Alfred Bryan and Joseph Mayer that was made famous by Sophie Tucker in the 1920s and then Elvis in the 1960s. Thanks, Meredith, for treating us to that gorgeous performance right here in the studio. You're welcome. If you've just joined us, welcome. I'm Chloe Veltman and this is Voicebox, your eclectic weekly exploration of the human voice and the best of the vocal music scene. Voicebox is available as a free weekly podcast on iTunes and at voicebox-media.org. Full playlist information for tonight's show can also be found on our site along with schedules and other useful information. On this evening's show, the Bay Area-based singer Meredith Axelrod has joined me for a discussion about the voices of popular singers of the early years of recorded sound. Meredith, the reason you're here is because I heard you sing incidental music in a theatre production in San Francisco a little while ago, and I was struck by how unusual your voice sounds. It's just not that often that I hear people sing with that kind of quality to their voices these days. You have this plummy, round tone, and your vowels sound a little different to how most folk, blues, and jazz singers enunciate their words today. And it's, it's got this lovely, warm, kind of beveled edge to it, too. Um, I'm also I'm wondering if you're positioning your larynx maybe slightly higher than most contemporary singers, and maybe you're mixing your chest and head voice in a way that makes you sound, well, for want of a better expression, marvelously old-fashioned. Um, can you describe what you were doing with your voice when you were singing that song here in the studio just now? Thank you. Um, in discussions with a couple of friends, they both said that I sound like I have a golf ball, like an invisible golf ball in the throat. <laughs> That's a really interesting way of describing it. I think I, I can kind of hear what they're visualizing there. Yeah, they both said golf ball and it was it made me try to sing without one. Mm-hmm. But now what I realize is that I'm lifting my soft palate when it's not the typical time when mm-hmm. one should lift one soft palate. But I realized this by looking in the mirror because I started to study my tonsils because I started having endless throat problems. Mm. And uh, I realized that one of my tonsils looks quite strange. It's it's just, it's very um, torn up looking. And huh. the other one looks fine. Huh. Yeah. And... It makes me very vulnerable to throat infections and sore throats and stuff, which then spread down to the vocal cords and cause swelling and edema, which causes hoarseness. Oh, well, that sounds but, awful. But I mean, so hang on. Are you- oh, but I was looking at my throat with a flashlight. Yeah. And I, I happened to notice that my soft palate was there. Oh. Right, right around my uvula or from, from which my uvula hangs. And I noticed as I looked at my throat, my soft palate would, would go up and down. Mm-hmm. And, and during the brief time when I took classical voice lessons, one of the issues was to raise my soft palate. Now, this was to, to sing very high notes in, in head voice. Yeah. But I never knew whether I was raising my soft palate or not. And I was told when you yawn, you're raising your soft palate and it's hard to tell. But this is very exciting because years later now I've discovered my soft palate concretely beyond a doubt i know when i am and when i'm not lifting my soft palate so Uh when i was looking at my tonsil my soft palate with the uvula hanging down would rise and fall and i thought gee i'm not controlling that how do how do i control that and by watching it in a few minutes i figured out the soft palate is the piece of anatomy that closes airflow out Mm -hmm. your nose huh I see. So, so sorry, please continue. No, no, it's okay. It's exciting stuff. So are you saying, in effect, that the golf ball sound yeah. comes as a result of lifting your soft palate yes. in your chest voice? Yeah. yeah, it's not in my throat. It's not down here uh-huh. in my larynx. I think it's right right yeah. behind my tongue or right at the, at the, in, huh. the, in the back part of my tongue. I think it's my soft palate. And it closes, it's the thing that closes your nose. So when you go, when you go, mmm, 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 mmm. Yeah. That is your soft palate pinching that airway up up there, right right above itself. Uh-huh. I, I always see. felt like when I went, mm, 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 I was pinching two pieces of flesh from the sides I see. together. But 
I just that was my felt sense and it wasn't accurate. I think it's the soft palate coming up. I see. And that is like such that was like the most useful. I wish I could tell everybody and I'm so glad to be telling it on the radio. <laughs> okay. Well, so do you think Sarah Carter uh, was doing the same sort of thing when she was singing as you're doing? Because I know that's someone who, you know, you have a you're a particularly huge fan of Sarah's. So was she approaching her voice the same way, do you think, when you listen to her recordings? Can Ooh, you tell? I don't think she's doing the soft palette thing, but I think she's just singing so naturally and so casually. It's it's arresting mm-hmm. and it's so just terrifically sincere. And I love when she sings the syllable myrrh mm-hmm. in the myrtle so bright. Mm-hmm. She does she goes into this head voice. She doesn't she doesn't stay in chest voice when she does that. Myrrh. It's just kind of shockingly beautiful when she does that because it's a different it's like a different voice than the rest of the syllables. Where the rose is so red and the lily is so Can you tell me a little bit about uh, how you became interested in this area of music history and what fascinates you so much about singers from this period? My sister would send me uh, recordings in the mail to listen to and I became acclimated, I guess that's the right word, sort of, acclimated to the old recording sound and the frequencies that the old equipment picks up and how did I become fascinated? Well, I love the sound. It's just so um, warm. It's so um, embracing. It's so, it's, I don't know. It sounds very comforting. So many people consider Thomas Edison to be the father of recorded sound. But actually that honour goes to a Frenchman who recorded the first song around 20 years earlier than Edison captured the spoken words Mary had a little lamb on a sheet of tinfoil. In 1857, Édouard Léon Scott de Martinville invented the phonautograph, the first device that could record sound waves as they passed through the air. His recording, made in April 1860, of a woman's voice singing a few seconds of the French nursery rhyme Au Clair de la Lune, was unearthed in an archive in Paris by a group of American audio historians in 2008. The recording medium was a sheet of soot-coated paper wrapped around a rotating cylinder carried on a threaded rod, and a stylus attached to a diaphragm through a series of levers traced a line through the soot, creating a graphic record of the motions of the diaphragm as it was minutely propelled back and forth by the audio frequency variations in air pressure. So now, for your listening pleasure, here's that 1860 recording of Au Clair de la Lune. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's totally scratchy and almost indistinct, but I think powerful nonetheless, right? Yeah. The amazing, I, th- I would think that the needle would discern volume, but I would never imagine that it would discern pitch and other vocal qualities. Yeah. I mean, it is still really hard, though, to make out what the song is. I mean, I played it to Seth, our producer, a little earlier today, and he couldn't figure out what the melody was. And he's a very good musician, so, you know, that goes to show that perhaps... I, I think you have to be listening really closely. I think she was on... Da. Yeah. Au clair de la lune. Yeah. Anyway, so it's interesting to me that the earliest recording and indeed many early recordings are of people singing. Why do you think singing, Meredith, as opposed to just speaking or maybe playing a trumpet or a violin or a drum, was the first type of noise to be committed to recorded sound? Oh, well, voice is the human body expressing itself and singing as opposed to speaking. Maybe it would be picked up better Hmm. than speaking and speaking is in a more narrow range than singing and singing generally it's definite discernible pitches Mm -hmm. and 
speaking can can be not as vivid. Yeah, I think I agree with you. And also, I mean, if singing is is it's an entertainment medium in a lot of ways, so maybe that's what makes it attractive to be those very early recordings. People might want to hear a song more than some pontificating speech or recitation. I don't know. Sure, and if the diction isn't picked up on the recording, the melody still may be. Yeah, right. Yeah, good point. So I'd like to move on to chatting about the ways in which those early recording artists performed. Um, Many of the singers came from the world of live performance, specifically vaudeville. Uh, What can you tell us, Meredith, about the transition from singing on stage to singing on a recording for these artists? Was it an easy one? I'd imagine so, because they had to sing so loudly in the vaudeville shows because they didn't have microphones. Right. Uh, They had megaphones. (laughs) But with recordings, though, they didn't need to sing so loudly, did they? Sometimes they did. Ed Meeker said he had to sing more loudly to record on discs than on cylinders, so he would charge double to sing on the discs. (laughs) That's an interesting story. So why did they have to sing so loud? So they were positioned in front of the big horn, right, on the the machines, and they sang right into the... Yeah. Into the horns, right? Yeah, I think at least to make cylinders, that's true. And at least till the mid-20s, I think, until they had electric recordings. Uh Uh-huh. So why was it they had to sing so loud, do you know? Well, I would have said to make pronounced uh, movements in the lathe stylus, in the cutting stylus. Yeah. But recently I've come across this project that these two people are doing. They're recording people on... uh, a 78 cutting lathe, modern mm-hmm. people. And those people sound great, even if they're not singing loudly. And it does come across. So what I would have said is untrue. Okay. Well, let's talk about Stella Mayhew and Mamie Smith, because these are examples of singers who came out of the vaudeville world and then went on to have these great careers uh, in the recorded environment. Um, we're going to hear a couple of recordings by these artists. What strikes you about the way in which these particular vocalists who came through the theatre use their voices in recordings, Meredith? Mamie Smith, what strikes me is how high a note she can hit in her chest voice and the longevity of her career that she made that work because it's so stressful to the voice. Well, it's so stressful to my voice, I can say, to do that. But it sounds delightful but I totally stopped trying to do that ever. But she does that. Stella Mayhew, her voice, you can hear a raspiness mm-hmm. in it. And many of many great voices from that era or who sing in that style have this raspiness. And I wonder if it's a structural uh, development or in the in the vocal folds themselves because uh, like calluses mm-hmm. from singing so loudly. From you mean from forcing so their voices? Yeah, I wonder if they have like calluses or something like calluses on their vocal folds that make their voices raspy, but also uh, make their voices able to do this. And you think a lot of those early artists then, because they were perhaps on the vaudeville stage and having to sing so loud, they had a lot of them had this issue? I would love to know. Yeah, and I guess there probably weren't too many voice therapists around in those (laughs) days to tell people not to do that or to help them find a solution. Yeah, they didn't have um, video cameras to stick down their throats, but they might have been able to see them with mirrors. Yeah, just like you were able to when you shone a flashlight down your throat the other day. I saw my soft palate, which is basically in the back of the mouth. That's true. Yeah, you weren't looking right down into your throat. I would love to see my vocal cords. (laughs) Well, let's listen now to Stella Mayhew and uh, Mamie Smith. The first track is Stella with Grizzly Bear, and we'll follow that up with Mamie and her song Crazy Blues. Don't compare, not so coolly, but a little more with coolly. Talk about your 
You're listening to Voicebox with me, Chloe Veltman. To find out more about our series, including how to make a much-needed donation to support our project, which is independently produced and non-profit, please visit voicebox-media.org. Donating to Voicebox is easy through our online PayPal link. Tonight's show is all about the voices that were popular in the early years of recorded sound, how popular singing has evolved as technology has changed, and how some singers today are embracing the past by rekindling long-lost approaches to singing. My guest is vocalist and early recordings junkie Meredith Axelrod. We just heard two singers from the early days of recorded sound, Stella Mayhew with Grizzly Bear and Mamie Smith with Crazy Blues. So I gather uh, that you've tried to imitate both of these singers' voices, or uh, especially Stella Mayhew's Meredith, and you described the experience of trying to imitate Stella's voice as being dangerous to your health. Um, <laughs> why was it dangerous? Uh, well, because it would irritate my vocal cords and make them swell. I think they swell. Uh-huh. I, I mean... Because, so what's happening, do you think, when those early singers are singing that's, that's so strenuous? Well, Mamie Smith, for one thing, da, she just hit the da, an octave above that in full-on chest voice. Mm-hmm. And I know that the higher the note, the more the vocal folds are stretched, mm-hmm. the more totally mm-hmm. they're stretched, and uh, the more forcefully air is blown through mm-hmm. them, the air can chafe the vocal cords just like it will chafe your lips if you go <laughs> for hours and and you don't you see so you, you just don't you 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 avoid singing or trying to emulate those two particular singers then yeah i don't yeah okay. i do i'm not that great a mimic i'm not that good a mimic but i know that you listen to them deeply and there are certain qualities that you're interested oh, but in i do try to imitate them when i oh. when i listen to them i if you know when like when Sarah Carter sings, and the myrtles, so I'll just sit there and be like, the myrrh, the myrrh, and the myrtle, the myrrh, the myrrh. I'll just try. Mm-hmm. Until you get exactly her sound. I don't get exactly her sound, but... <laughs> Something approximating it then. Yeah, the way I sing is probably just mediocre mimicry. But it's it's that's why it's not just a copycat of someone else. Mm-hmm. It's like mediocre mimicry of a lot of people. <laughs> Well, uh, wow, that's an interesting way of putting it um, and very humble. <laughs> so I, I would like to talk about a few singers from the early 20th century whose voices uh, you greatly admire. I thought we could touch on Billy Murray, Dan Quinn, Arthur Collins and Jane Green. Uh, let's start with Billy Murray. Okay. What can you tell us about this singer? He's probably my favorite singer. He has such a strange thing going in his voice. It's really... Um Oh, dear. It's this plucky quality. Not like strings being plucked, but plucky like... Uh, like chipper? Yeah, chipper. Yeah, and, uh-huh. and rotund. Uh-huh. And, and what about Dan Quinn, who's another, another great singer that you like? He sings really loudly, and he has this kind of cracking quality that a lot of great singers had who made cylinders, which just sounds like men singing loudly on pitch in a very similar to natural speaking voice. Well, let's listen to tracks sung by Billy Murray and Dan Quinn now. Here's a 1909 recording sung by Murray of I Wonder Who's Kissing Her Now from the musical The Prince of Tonight, and that's composed by Joseph Howard. We'll follow that track up with a song sung by Dan Quinn in Summertime Down by the Sea. The words are by Harry B. Lester and the music is by Alfred J. Doyle. That track comes from 1904. You have loved lots of girls in the sweet long ago And each one has meant heaven to you You have vowed your affection to each one in turn And have sworn to them all you'd be true You have kissed neath the moon while the world seemed in film And you've left her to hunt a new game Does it ever occur to you later, my boy That she's probably Summertime Down by the Sea, sung by Dan W. Quinn, Columbia Records. When the spring climbs around and no snow's on the ground, we 
You're tuned into Voice Box with me, Chloe Veltman. We just had two recordings from the first decades of the 20th century. The first was I Wonder Who's Kissing Her Tonight, performed by Billy Murray, and the second was In Summertime Down by the Sea, which is a song sung by Dan W. Quinn. My guest is Meredith Axelrod, a singer who lives in the Bay Area and who is passionate and knowledgeable about the voices of artists who recorded between the years 1890 and 1930. Please visit voicebox-media.org to find out more about our series and our free weekly podcasts are always available on iTunes and on the Voicebox website. Meredith, we have two more singers from the early 20th century whose voices you particularly admire and that we're going to explore right now briefly. Tell us what you like so much uh, and what you hear in the vocal stylings of Arthur Collins and Jane Green. Well, Arthur Collins, like Billy Murray, has this very distinctive thing going on. He just has a gorgeous, deep, deep voice. And what he and Dan Quinn do is kind of similar to me. And another thing I just noticed listening to Dan Quinn is that his pitches are very, A, true and accurate, but B, the onset is right on the pitch. He Mm -hmm. never... He doesn't swoop. Not at all. And lots of great singers swoop, but it's not... I mean, it's not swooping unless it's it's really excessive. Uh But... Most of them, the onset of the pitch is um, isn't so stark, uh-huh. but uh, with Dan, and sometimes he'll miss the pitch uh-huh. and he'll correct yeah. very, very quickly. Most people will miss the pitch and correct gently, mm-hmm. but Dan Quinn, he he never misses the pitch by much, and it's also because it's imperfect. It's even more. Uh, speech-like and even more endearing. Well, that speech-like quality is something we really hear in Arthur Collins's voice too, right? Yes. Uh-huh. And, and so what about Jane Green? Jane Green, uh, she has a gorgeous, resonant voice and a peculiar pronunciation, I think, of uh, vowels. Uh-huh. She, she reminds me of a kid that had enlarged adenoids in my school. Huh. Okay, that's an interesting way of thinking about voices. And also, I mean, I've, what I've noticed about a lot of the voices that we've been listening to tonight so far is how nasal they are. Everything's very much in the mask, very adenoidy. Yeah. And they're... Honky. <laughs> honky. They're two nasal... They're two nasals. There's a nasal with air coming through the nose. Mm-hmm. Like, like... Like if I talk like this, and there's nasal with air resonating behind the nose. Mm-hmm. How does that? This is the ah. Uh, oh dear, I haven't practiced <laughs> this. Uh, uh, I don't. We're we. Well, I don't know hmm. well. how to demonstrate it. I can do it when I'm singing. California, here I come. Right back where I started from. I'm not sure if that demonstrates it. But it's through the nose. Cal- California. But nobody sings like that. So that's a terrible <laughs> demonstration. No, they, they do. They, they, there's really? a honk. I think some of the singers we've heard tonight have been quite honky. California, here I come. Yeah, like, really? I, yeah, don't you think Billy Murray's kind of got that quality to his voice? Uh, if I think it's gorgeously integrated with the rest of the qualities okay. maybe I don't know maybe I didn't notice it because it's not obnoxious and in your face like <laughs> but. all right well let's listen now to to Arthur Collins and Jane Green so that we're going to hear if I am going to die I'm going to have some fun which is an Arthur Collins track recorded in 1907 and we'll follow that up with going to meet my sweetie now uh, which will be sung by Jane Green and that recording comes from 1927 the other thing about Arthur Collins, you can re- you can hear him smiling when he sings. He almost he's sounds happy. like he sounds like he's almost laughing. Uh huh. It's true. He's like a vaudevillian. He is a vaudevillian. Uh-huh. 
he had a date to shoot some dice. He walked right out in the wind and snow tonight was cold as ice. <laughs> Three weeks later, a very sickly cold, a doctor with a spoon said, Jim, take your medicine. Jim said, Doc, am I bad now? Don't you lie. The doctor said, I'll tell the truth. I think you're going to die. So Jim sat right straight up in bed. He raised his head and to the doctor said, I'm going to get right up and put on the clothes. I'm going to go right out and take in all the shows. Going to drive around in the open carriage if I meet the I'm Chloe Veltman and I'm chatting with vocalist Meredith Axelrod about some of the popular singers of the early recorded sound era here on Voicebox tonight. The singers whose voices we just heard were Arthur Collins and Jane Green. Please visit voicebox-media.org for full playlist information, schedules and other useful stuff about our series. And don't forget you can find our free weekly podcasts on iTunes and on our website. We're also reachable and followable via Facebook and Twitter. Meredith, I want to talk a bit about Helen Kane. Kane was a popular singer of the 1920s who's perhaps best known today as the inspiration for the cartoon character Betty Boop. Now, Kane had a very distinctive voice, didn't she, Meredith? How would you describe it? She sings like a little girl, but uh, with adult expertise. (laughs) (laughs) Which is a euphemism, perhaps, for she sounded sexy or... No, No, I didn't mean that at all. I meant... uh, with adult expertise in that uh, she had more vocal control Mm -hmm. than a child would have. I'm not resting until I find what would make your eyes glisten with joy. Now listen, big boy. I want to be loved by you, just you. Nobody else but you I want to be loved by you Alone I want to be kissed by you Just you Nobody else but you Yeah, nobody sings like that anymore. It's very distinctive. Yeah. Helen Kane, that was her signature song, I Want to Be Loved by You. Um... Why was Helen Kane so influential? Maybe it's so shocking to hear that little child voice coming out of uh, a grown person. You think even back in the day, she would have that, that, that people would have been shocked by her voice. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. There must have been more than there must have been a lot of uh, people doing that, but. Still, I think it would have been shocking. (laughs) Well, it seems that she had quite a few imitators, um, perhaps because she had such a unique voice. I thought we could hear um, a bit of the Jazz Age singer Annette Hanshaw imitating Kane. Uh, What do you think about this recording? It's an interesting one, right? Yeah, this is the recording that made me think that a a person with a normal voice apparatus could reproduce a child's voice. Mm Mm-hmm. Because prior to hearing this record, I had thought it it was a feature, an aberrant feature that Helen Kane had, that yeah. her voice box must be miniature. Uh-huh. But hearing Annette Hanshaw, who has a really normal voice, mimic a child so perfectly well, mm-hmm. I realized anyone can do it mm-hmm. if you can figure out how to do it. Right. Well, let's listen now to Annette Hanshaw. First, we're going to hear her singing in her normal voice. And the song we're going to hear is I Can't Give You Anything But Love. And then let's listen to the same artist doing this imitation of Helen Kane singing I Want to Be Loved By You. I 
but it's tough to be broke, dear. It's not a joke, dear. It's a curse. My luck is changing. It's gotten from simply rotten to something worse. Who knows? Someday I will win too. I'll begin to reach my prime. Now though I see what our end is, all I can spend. Helen Kane? Oh dear. I've tried, but I sound like uh, Archie Bunker's wife because I get the <laughs> accent and maybe the the same uh, pitch register, but I just can't get the, the the ineffable quality. It's or not that it's not that nobody could pin down what it is, but it's ineffable to me. Uh huh. You want to give it a try? Uh oh dear. Uh. Uh, let's see. There, there's, there's that old moon way up high. The, I can't do it. I can't say, I wouldn't say I can. There are you, here am I. Oh, oh, do, do something. <laughs> there's, there's that old moon way up high. There are you, here am I. Oh, oh, do. That's wonderful. No, I, I like the, the, but the quality of the vowels. You got her kind of I sound. You know the kind of I. I can't do it at all. I'm sorry. I sound like a castrated chicken. But me too. <laughs> but um. But yeah. No. Well. Like, well. Okay. So it's your own. It's 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 your voice. It's not Helen Kane. But I was really. It was really lovely to hear you capture some of the qualities that you're hearing in her voice anyway. So um, speaking of imitation, there's quite a trend for vocalists imitating or seeking inspiration from these voices of the early recorded sound era on today's indie pop scene. Why do you think singers today are so inspired by these jazz age performers? Because they're gorgeous and because now they're available like never before. Right, because there are all these amazing digitized archives now, so people can just go online and hear all this stuff more yes. easily. And with that kind of availability, how could it not be sought after and adored and imitated? And uh huh. Yeah, and so who are some of the artists working in the space today that you really admire? Oh, I love Callie Price, who mm-hmm. Im- who sings in a, like a later style than mm-hmm. that. Tamar Korn, mm-hmm. Jesse Carolina. Frank Fairfield, who does he does the strictly the country thing, mm-hmm. and he's a singer and instrumentalist. Uh huh. Huh. Well, let's listen to a couple of these people now. I've got recordings by Tamar Korn and Jesse Carolina. First up, we'll hear Jesse Carolina and the Hot Mess with "After You've Gone," and then we'll hear Tamar Korn and Gaucho with "Sing On." Listen, honey, while I say, how can you tell me that you're going away? Don't say that we must part. Don't break my aching heart. I may bring you showers, though you hope for bliss in your summer hours. Try remembering this to sing songs Music comes sweeter A melancholy day 
couple times Dance a steady rhythm or sing a simple rhyme What pain conceals, music reveals Oh, it can help to hear that which you feel With just a charm Two singers with voices that sound intriguingly old school to the contemporary ear. Jessie Carolina and Tamar Korn. You can find full playlist information at voicebox-media.org. My guest on tonight's show is vocalist and early recordings enthusiast Meredith Axelrod. Well, I've been intrigued to find out about the 78 Project, which is an initiative which captures performances by contemporary vocalists using old technology, specifically a microphone, an authentic 1930s Presto direct-to-disc recorder and a blank lacquer disc. The 78 Project is one of a number of initiatives, such as the Cylinder Preservation and Digitisation Project at UC Santa Barbara and the Early Recordings Collection at the Library of Congress to preserve the voices of early recording artists. I was listening, I went onto the 78 Project's website and um, I found a recording by Richard Thompson that was made in 2012 of this old folk song. Uh, I think it's an Appalachian song, uh, it might even be older, it might from from uh, Europe it's called the cuckoo bird and uh, I went into my record collection and I found uh, a recording from the early 20th century a Smithsonian recording of that song performed by uh, an old-time roots artist by the name of Clarence Tom Ashley and so okay they're both singing these songs into old what's considered now old legacy technology but to me they sound very different so um, yeah, so you've got you you you've got Ashley's voice, which sounds like so much of its time somehow. And Thompson, he's singing the same song, but it's a very modern voice. So let's listen to both of these recordings now, and That's I'd be brilliant. curious to see what you think. <laughs> Going to build me log cabin. On a mountain so high, so I can see Willie as he goes on by. Tonight on Voice Box with me, Chloe Veltman. I'm with Meredith Axelrod, and we're exploring pop singers' voices in the years of early recorded sound and more modern attempts to emulate that part of vocal music history. The tracks we just heard were two versions of a folk song, The Cuckoo Bird. The first performance came from a Smithsonian Folkways recording from the early 20th century by Clarence Tom Ashley. And then we heard a recording of the song made in 2012 by Richard Thompson using 1930s gear. It comes from the 78 Project website. So to my ear, Meredith, these tracks demonstrate how singers today sound different to those of yesteryear, even when old recording equipment is used to capture their voices. Thompson just has this much more speechily sustained sound of a singer who's been using a microphone all his life. And the more nasal piercing sound of Ashley suggests a singer who's been singing out of doors a lot more and has to carry his voice without the aid of a mic. But I'm just guessing maybe there are other qualities that you pick up on in the recordings. What do you think? Uh, yeah, what struck me was pitch onset. Uh, I think Ashley's pitch onset is is uh, pretty sudden mm-hmm. and uh, piercing, as you said. 
but, but it, well, it contributes to beat the, mm-hmm. to having the tone be fiercely. And the modern Thompson mm-hmm. is um, his pitch on set is gentler. Uh huh. So were you surprised? Would you have been able to tell that 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 track that Thompson sang was recorded on on a seventy eight on a seventy eight? I was not able to tell that at this time through these headphones. Yeah. So I know we've been focusing on various pop music styles on tonight's show, you know, jazz, blues and folk and so on. But I wanted to make a quick digression into the world of classical singing to further illustrate how styles and tastes change over the course of a century in all kinds of music. It's striking to me just how differently opera singers today sound compared to their counterparts who are captured on cylinder and disc 100 or so years ago. One of the main stylistic differences that scholars have identified is the changing attitude towards portamento, which is a fancy Italian term for pitch sliding from one note to the next. Now, sliding is, of course, a staple of jazz singing. But while portamento was common practice among opera singers in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, the technique became discredited uh, as being rather affected and sloppy as the 20th century went on. And modern singers are very sparing in their use of portamento today, as we can hear from the next couple of recordings that I'd like to play. First, we're going to hear Adelina Patti, a world-famous opera diva of the late 1800s, singing Voi che sapete from Mozart's The Marriage of Figaro. Uh, Listen out for all her swoops and glides. And then we'll hear a contemporary star, Cecilia Bartoli, saying the same aria. Voi che sapete is interpreted first by Adelina Patti in a 1906 recording and then by Cecilia Bartoli in 2006. All right. Well, I guess that's all we have time for this week, Meredith. But thanks so much for coming to the studio and sharing your your thoughts and your wonderful music. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's been most delightful. (laughs) To find out more about (laughs) Meredith Axelrod, please visit MeredithAxelrod.com. That's M-E-R-E-D. I-T-H-A-X-E-L-R-O-D dot com. Let's have one more song from tonight's guest, Meredith Axelrod. We're going to hear Someday Sweetheart by Rob Spikes and John C. Spikes. Have a songful week. You told me that you'd love me true And I believed in you But you broke your But there'll come a day When you're far away You'll sit alone and sigh For me you'll cry And the days gone by Someday, sweetheart Those vows you 
that made us drift apart. You're happy now and can't see how the weary blues could ever come to you. But as you so reap, so shall you you have done to my poor heart you shall regret the vows you've broken and the things you did that made us drift apart you're happy now and can't see how the weary blues could ever come to you but as you Hi.